<laughs> morning, welcome. You're already saying hello to me before I even get up here. That's amazing. Um, listen, I want to reiterate the Easter, um, the Easter announcement and two things with that. Number one, if you're online, I don't know if you remember last year, but we hosted every single one of our services with online hosts. We're going to be doing that again, and that's actually something we're wanting to move towards so there's a lot more engagement with our online audience because we love you guys, and we know that you are watching in, and we don't want you to just be like weird voyeurs. We want you to be part of our community and understand that. So we're working towards that. Um, which is a little bit of an investment. We got to build a little bit of a studio to be able to do some of that work, but we're excited about that. But um, for next week, we want you to be here. Um, Bryant mentioned we're doing communion on Friday night, and it's dangerous to mention communion in an Adventist community because that's always the lowest attended part of church ever. Like, oh, communion, yeah, I'm going to go to the beach. Um, wash my whole body, not just my feet. Um, but... <laughs> But it's a really sweet time. And if you've never done communion with, communion with us on Easter weekend, it is a sweet time to bring family, to bring friends, to be able to experience it. Although we're a large church, we experience it as small groups. It's really powerful. And I've um, seen the program that we're putting together. It's going to be really an amazing weekend from Friday night all the way through Sunday. And listen, you know, one of the things we ask you to do one time during the year is bring a friend to church. And, and quite honestly, Easter is a pretty amazing time to do that. They're kind of open already. It's probably part of their tradition, even if they've left it at some point. And so we would love to have you all be praying this week and thinking about who it is that you'd like to bring to Easter so we can not only get a chance to meet them, but they can see the way that this community loves one another and takes care of one another. And so we, we would just, let me just reiterate that. I think it's really um, important. And thank you. Thank you already for all that you are. You guys take care of each other in such wonderful ways and you know how to love well. So thank you for that. Um, you may be wondering why we chose this term after for an Easter service. Normally what we do, normally what most churches do, is you do this big run up to Easter and Easter is this really high moment and then it's kind of like, a, oh, let's move on to something else in scripture. You know, let's talk about Revelation or go somewhere else. Um, we, I really wanted to spend some time thinking about what it means to be a Christian after the resurrection, what happened for the disciples, to the disciples, all the way from that 40 days from resurrection to ascension. And so we're going to spend three weeks on that. Obviously, we're starting before Easter because we have to do that. Um, but, but I want to spend some time on that in this series. And so that's why we're calling it after, because the reality is we have to, we live in the after. We live in the after of the resurrection, the after of the crucifixion. And, and the disciples and Jesus had to live in the midst of that, through that, and after that as well. And so how do we respond to that? And how do we lean into that learning that we might have an opportunity to have? So we're, we're doing a lot today. So I'm going to jump right into it. No more preambles. Um, we start before the crucifixion, certainly. And we're starting on that Sunday, the Sunday of the triumphal entry. Um, I know you know that story, but we're going to go through it real quick because something pretty profound happens between Sunday and Thursday. But it begins like this, reading from the book of Mark. And I'll be a little bit over the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three, have, they call them the synoptic gospels. John, I will also be quoting from. John is written a little later, doing a little bit of a different thing, but still has part of this narrative. So we do kind of an amalgamation of the synoptics as well as bring in John. But right now we're reading from Mark chapter 11 verse 1. New Living Translation is what I'm reading from. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, 
they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've ever been to the Mount of Olives, everybody looks at the part of the Mount of Olives that looks at Jerusalem. This is actually the other side of the Mount of Olives. It's about two and a half, three miles, I think, from, um, from, from the Jerusalem. That's the, that's the place I'm looking for. I, the problem is I'm picturing it in my mind because I've walked it. And I'm picturing two things. Number one, I'm picturing like the beauty of Israel and Jerusalem. And I'm also picturing how ridiculously hot it was when we did that walk. Because we walked there like we're in Bethany, which is down here. And we're walking up Mount of Olives, back down through the Valley of Kidron, in through the Sheep's Gate, I believe it was called. The Sheep's Gate, which is right by the temple. And this is kind of the route that Jesus is taking. So he's walking there with his disciples. They're headed into Jerusalem on this Sunday. And Jesus sends two of them ahead. Right? Go into the village over there, probably Bethphage, just a little bit closer, I believe. Go into the village there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Two problems. First one being, how do you know no one's ridden it? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't just drive by horses and be like, nobody's ridden that guy. I don't know how you know that, but apparently it's part of it. And you know why? He says it because it's from the prophecy that we see in Zechariah 9.9, that he will ride an unridden colt into the city. So, so it's there. There's a second part of it, though, right? You can't just take somebody's donkey. I mean, this is what he says. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll return it soon. I don't know if that's going to work when you walk out and you see a nice car, somebody's getting into it and you're like, hang on, the Lord needs it, I'll bring it back. Like, I don't, it's still grand theft, right? Grand theft equine, I think, is what they call it. Oh no, the first service got that joke way more than you did. In fact, I only said it because they laughed at it and I thought it was a safe joke. And you just, just now I don't know what to do with it. Grand theft equine, equine are horses. Stole horse. No, I don't think you do. <laughs> Here's the problem, right? I write these sermons early in the week because I record them for the sites. I tell jokes in a very empty room. I think they're funny. I have no idea if people laugh at them when we send them out to the different campuses. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I have no clue. I'm not there. And then I think about it for three days thinking, I think it's pretty funny. You've destroyed it for me. <laughs> should, should we maybe get back to the sermon? Because yeah. this got a little weird, weirdly therapeutic there. Um, anyway, it's, it's fascinating to me. So the disciples leave. They find it. They find this colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. Confirmation of what he said. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They recognize you are just stealing this colt. So they tell them what Jesus told them to say. And apparently everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Jesus had been doing something different to the point where people were recognizing it. They were recognizing that when Jesus said something, they're like, oh, okay, we should probably take that seriously. And for some reason, even in this little village with this little colt, colt, colt that was also recognized. So then they bring this colt to Jesus and they throw their garments over it so he can sit on something a little bit nicer. And, um, and this is where things take a little bit of a turn, right? Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them. And others spread branches they had cut from the fields. 
They were so excited about Jesus that they didn't even want his colt, the donkey that he was on, they didn't even want that to touch the ground. That's how much they cared for him. Do you care about anybody that much that you would just take? Because this is what I grew up. Like for some reason there was this idea that a gallant, a gallant man, right, a gentleman, if, if a woman was walking down the street and there was a puddle, you would take off your jacket and put it down on the puddle. And then you were a true gentleman. Just for the record, I've lived a while. I've never seen somebody do that. And I feel like if I did it, my wife would be like, what are you doing? I can walk around the puddle. I bought you that jacket. Now it's all covered in mud, right? But, but that's, that's what this always reminds me of. I mean, what, who would you drop your jacket for? Who would you take, literally take the shirt off your back and throw it in front of their car so it wouldn't touch the ground because it was carrying somebody so important? You have to believe pretty hard. You have to believe that this person sitting on this donkey is somebody who's really, really important, right? Really, really matters, so Jesus was in the center of the procession. It's become a procession now, right? His friends walking. Now it's all of a sudden a procession. And people around them were all shouting, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Man, and you know, some people really love being center of, of attention. Some people don't like it so much. Some people are willing to allow it to happen because of a greater mission that they have. And I think that's kind of where Jesus was. But then they said something else. Right? They say, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're like, this is an ambassador from God. Maybe it's God, right? This is, this is really, this is important. And then they said that one other thing that's interesting. Blessings on the coming of the kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest. So, so there's more than just a spiritual situation happening here. There seems to be some political motivation behind it as well. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, right? Golden age. Right? David as king of Israel, golden age. They're all hearkening back to that. They're an oppressed people. Rome has occupied their territory. They're an oppressed people. So this is also a political statement. Now, this is not unheard of in the first century. Not unheard of at all in this part of the world in the first century. We see little revolutions happening. We see messiahs showing up, saying that they're messiahs, people following them, like becoming, you know, these revolutionaries that are happening and being, it's being squashed by the by Rome. So not 100% unheard of, but just to be clear, it's not just a spiritual procession. They're excited about what's about to happen. And then something weird happens. And I don't know if you've read this story and really contemplate on it. Of course you have, I'm sure. You're all brilliant and much smarter than me. As I was reading it, I was like, I seem to have forgotten this part of the story. Jesus comes in, triumphal entry, right? Everybody's excited. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem, went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was in late afternoon. So he's looking around and he's like, yeah, not today. If you have a bunch of people following you, and they follow you into the, the particular area where people have speeches, where things happen, right? The center, the heart of the city. Normally, you'd stand up and say something. Because when you want to start a movement, you got to keep the people motivated. And this is a big moment. So they get there, they walk in, he looks around, he's like, man, it's pretty late in the afternoon. Turns around and goes back to Bethany. The way he came. It must have been confusing for the people who were with him. They're like, this is happening, praise God, this is amazing. Oh, you're just going to leave? Well, I, guess, I guess we'll just go home. I mean, it's a great way to start off a week, right? Not a bad way to start off a week. People were excited, people were hopeful. 
People were expectant. You ever been expectant? You ever been expectant, excited that something's about to happen? Right? But and usually you're expectant about something that's going to be pleasant or interesting. I got to tell you, something was about to happen. And they were expecting it. It just probably wasn't what they were hoping for. On Sunday, they're believers, man. On Sunday, they're ready to go. They're ready to drop their shirts, drop their robes, and let, let, let a donkey walk over them. I wonder, are you expectant about anything? Especially about anything having to do with God. I don't know, being expectant is a really dangerous place to be. Right? When you expect something to turn out really well and it doesn't. Or maybe sometimes you expect something to turn out a certain way and it goes way better than you think. It's still a dangerous place to be. Right? The lots can go wrong. It's often disappointing. And they were ready for something, probably ready for anything, to change their lives and in their world. And I wonder what Sunday night was like for the team. By team, I mean the disciples and the hangers-on. Right? They all go back to Bethany. They're all hanging out at Lazarus' house. What kind of conversation would they have had? Did you see that? We just took that donkey. Nobody even cared. We brought it back. You see, they were throwing their clothes at him. This guy is popular. We, we backed the right horse. This is Jesus, a little confused, a little confused. We got to the temple. He didn't really do anything. But, man, it must have been so exciting and so confusing and so not sure what was going to happen. Then things take a turn, right, the next day. Right? From a high, high note on Sunday night to kind of this reality check on Sunday morning or Monday morning. Jesus enters, and in Mark it says the next morning, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Now, now John tells this story at the beginning of his ministry. The Synoptic Gospels put it in this particular week, in the Passion Week. Um, but you wonder, like, is Jesus emboldened by the parade? Was Jesus planning on doing this on Sunday night? But when he got there, everyone was just kind of gone and wrapped it up for the day. So he had to go back the next day. I don't know the logistics of it, but it's always been a little interesting to me. But then he says something, right? He said, the scriptures declare, and he's quoting now, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, why was he so upset? I mean, I think we know, we hear this narrative when we're growing up, but just to clarify, what Jesus was pushing back on was the amalgamation of economics, politics, and religion. These three things had coalesced in the temple to keep people away, to oppress people and keep them away from God. It's really dangerous. Listen, right, anytime a religious system and a political system and an economic system get together, it doesn't really doesn't really work too well. And I, I get it. Like, I'm part, of a, I'm part of a religious system. You're kind of part of a religious system too. Obviously, religious systems need money to continue on, right? We need you to give tithes so I can get paid for my salaries. We need you to give locally so that the church can stay open and we can have air conditioning and lights and all the things that we have, right? We need that. But this is different. This is different. Because when your faith depends on your economy, your faith then conforms to whatever's going to work for your economy, and by the way, you put a political understanding into that as well. Now we're talking about power. And power and money, they're pretty close. Right? 
So now you've got a religious system that's feeding into a political system that feeds into an economic and power system. Faith doesn't have a chance because faith is the thing that's malleable or at least we feel like it is. When religion becomes the extension of your politics, not the other way around, we're in trouble. Religion, right, it's called the opiate of the masses, but really what it is is the poetry of the people. But it has to be given to the people. And what was happening here and why Jesus was so upset, I believe, is that salvation was being held for ransom to the economic system and to the political system. This was not selling a t-shirt in the lobby, right? This was kidnapping salvation. This was kidnapping justification. This was kidnapping forgiveness and restitution and redemption and keeping it away from people unless they got involved in the economic system and the power system that was there. That's what this was. It wasn't because somebody was selling a dove. It was because you didn't get to pray unless you bought their dove. Even if you brought your own dove, you'd still have to sell it back to them. They'd take it and give you an unblemished dove. And then they just sell your dove a couple days later when you weren't there anymore. It was a system of usury and a system of gatekeeping that was unreasonable to Jesus. Because what he said is, my temple will be a house of prayer. That means everybody can pray, but you couldn't even pray. By the way, it's really easy to tell when religion has become corrupted. Religion becomes corrupted and it shows it by becoming a gatekeeper to other salvation. I hope you hear me. When religion gets in the way of people meeting God, it has become corrupt. It has become used for particular purposes, whether they're ideological, political, or economic. And that's a problem. When we tell people they don't get to see God. And Jesus wasn't having it. And so Jesus kicked them out and turned over the tables and threw over the chairs. Not because they were selling wares for too much. It was because they were standing in the way of people meeting God. And you know what happens afterwards? And this is fascinating. And you need to hear this. We see immediately a turn back to true religion. What I mean by that is religion a love of God that is accompanied by incredible works of faith, healing, compassion, mercy, protection, and hope. This is what it says. The blind and the lame came to him, and hear this phrase, in the temple. Because if you know anything about first century religion in that part of the world, you know, and we hear these stories, right? Peter and John went to pray. They met a, long, a young man on the way, the lame man on the way, right? That's the story. Well, the reason why they met him on the way and they didn't meet him in the temple is because he was not allowed in the temple because he was not whole, because he was lame, because he was blind, because he was broken, right? Lepers weren't allowed. Nobody was allowed in because they were being kept out. When Jesus kicked over the temples and he threw over the chairs, he opened the doors too, he kicked the doors open and in the temple came the lame and the blind to be healed. Because that's what a temple, that's what a church is supposed to be. A place where people get healed. A place where people meet God. A place where people pray to God without obstruction. That's why Jesus was mad. And by the way, that's why he needed the sellers to be there to make this statement. 
And apparently when he got there on Sunday night, they had all wrapped up. So he's like, no, it's not going to work. Let's take a nap. Coming back. I know we don't like to think about the, like, the practical logistics of this, but I think the more I read this, the more I think that's what happened. He needed more people because he needed them to be there. But, but it's not always well accepted, right? You, we love it. We think this is great. Yeah, that's what our church is supposed to be. Yeah, but your economics and your power don't depend on that. So the leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these, and I love how he says, wonderful miracles. These are great. And even heard the children in the temple shouting. Okay, at this point, the children start shouting, praise God for the son of David. Children get it quick. You know that, right? And children don't care. Like children don't care about gatekeepers. In fact, if you worship with us, you know kids will like lose their minds. All you got to do is put some lights down on the ground and they just come running up here and they don't care. They don't care. I, I, you see kids like praising God, singing as loud as they can. They have none of the problems that we do, right? They're like, I hope nobody sees me. I'm not going to raise my hand. Kids are like, bah, because they don't. So they're, they're, they're praising God, right? And so, so the leaders were indignant. They were upset. And they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Like he'd be mad about it. And he's like, yeah. Haven't you ever heard or ever read the scriptures? He's quoting from Psalm 8-2 here, right? In, in Matthew, it's quoted as, haven't you ever read the scriptures for, for they say, you've taught children and infants to give praise. He's quoting from Psalm 8-2, which actually says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. We need those kids praying. We need those kids praising. We need those kids worshiping God because they're our stronghold against what the devil is trying to do in your life. Then he went back to Bethany and stayed the night. He went back to Lazarus' place. What if you were the team? Like, okay, that's what we were looking for. He got it now. Now we're cooking with oil. This is going to be a great week. In the morning as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, apparently they couldn't get a place there. Walked those two miles back. By the way, um, in the synoptics, the timeline of this is a little bit weird. Some say this was Monday. Some say this was happening on Tuesday. I'm not sure it matters that much. Um, he's going to Jerusalem and he's hungry. And he notices a fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered up. Man, that guy was hangry. I mean, seriously, he's like, oh, yeah, no fruit. You'll never bear fruit. And the tree dies. Now, here's what's fascinating, right? The, the disciples don't really know what to do with this metaphor, so they sort of lean into the miracle of the withering of the tree. The disciples were amazed, and when they saw this, they asked, like, how did you, how did you do that? <laughs> you made that tree wither really quick. Um... And then Jesus has this interesting thing. Jesus recognizes that they don't really understand the miracle. So he says, listen, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to the mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. Uh, the problem is, let's not lose the metaphor for the miracle. The miracle is interesting. And if you were there, I'd, I think I'd do the same thing. Like, man, he killed that tree. Give him like a granola bar. But, but the metaphor is something that is important because the metaphor is that the fig tree is a symbol for Israel from Jeremiah, from Hosea, has always been. Israel is the fig tree. 
And this seems to be a clear call that Israel was no longer bearing fruit and that it was no longer any good to God. So he might as well just get rid of it. Right? In the midst of this, he says to them, you can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you'll receive it. That's great, but let's not lose the metaphor for the miracle. The question I think we have to ask ourselves, both personally, as a church, as a denomination, we have to ask ourselves this, what fruit are you bearing? Because without fruit, we're in trouble. Without fruit, people are not meeting the gospel. People are not finding a need for a relationship with Jesus. People are finding it irrelevant in their lives. And people are not committing. And I, I'll tell you what. I don't, it, just some, some statistics, right? Um, in the next five years, we're going to lose 5,000 pastors because they're going to get old and retire, right? We have currently in North America less than 100 graduating so this year graduating, less than 100 graduating theology students. We have to replace 5,000 in five years. We have less than 100 graduating every year. And most of those, I shouldn't say most, many of those will not be going into church ministry. It's just a theology major that they took. Our churches aren't going to have pastors in five years. Many churches. Same thing is true with our educators. People are not going into our education systems anymore. We're in dire need of bearing fruit. But for some reason, and I can't believe it's that the gospel is no longer compelling. I can't believe that it's, oh, well, this word of Jesus is no longer interesting to the world and to our children. I can't believe it's that. I wonder if it's because we've been preaching something other than the gospel. I wonder if it's that we've, we've stopped bearing fruit because we've been so involved in mission drift and just protecting what we have that that's, I mean, come on. Survival's not inspirational, really. And survival is not a mission statement. And I feel like right now sometimes we're just holding on. And if we can hold on long enough for Jesus to come, we made it. That's, we're retreating. I believe in a God that's progressive, that advances towards the world because he loves it so much. I believe that we have to continue to preach the gospel unadulterated. And that means Jesus loves you. And Jesus cares for you. And Jesus died for you. And that's always going to be the most compelling argument in the room for anything. But we've gotten so caught up in so many other things that people don't want to be a part of it anymore. They don't, want to, they don't even want to belong to the tree anymore, let alone let the tree bear fruit. That's our problem. We got to change that. There's more that happens this week. In fact, if you look at Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, you've got what's called the Olivet Discourse, right? Jesus on the Mount of Olives preaching, and it's a long chapter, so we're not going to go through it all. But he's talking about the end of time, and he's talking about the temple being destroyed, and he's talking about all these things that are going to happen before he comes again and how the earth is going to fall apart. Like, we get some of our eschatology from this particular chapter. And, and he preaches for a long time, and the disciples finally go, hey, and like he, they listen to this and they're like, well, later Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives. His disciples come to him privately. And I think they come to him privately sometimes because they're a little embarrassed that they don't understand what he was talking about. They don't want to be like in front of the crowds like, hey, hey, I don't get it. Because, <laughs> you know, they're his people. They're like, yeah, listen to him. What? <laughs> so they say, listen, tell us when all this is going to happen. And what sign will signal your return in the end of the world? 
That sounds pretty, that sounds like familiar to us. And listen, it's fair. Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple. He spoke about the end of the age. And there's really two parts to these questions, right? There's one about the end of the age, and then there's one about when the temple will be destroyed. He doesn't give them a, a solid answer. He doesn't give them 100% of an answer. We know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD under the, um, under the rule of Domitian. It was destroyed, and there was the diaspora. Jews went all over the world, um, a fact that we're still living with today, that they were, you know, they were dispersed. Right? It was the end of the sacrificial system. It was the movement towards synagogues and towards smaller communities and all that sort of thing. But I wonder if just a big takeaway from this, and you need to read, you need to read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. Um, but I wonder like, if in their preoccupation about the end of things, did they miss Jesus in their midst? And sometimes I wonder if we do that too. We get preoccupied with the end. We miss what Jesus is doing right now. And so we don't bear fruit. We don't bear fruit because we just are looking for the end of all things rather than the multiplication, the reproduction of the gospel in our lives. Now, all of this led up to the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. That's what we're dealing with next week. We're dealing with it on Friday night, on Sabbath morning, and on Sunday. And by the way, if you wonder why a Seventh-day Adventist church does a Sunday morning service, um, it's pretty simple. We do Saturday morning services too, but I don't know if you remember the weekend. Friday is when Jesus dies. Saturday, things were quiet. Sunday, he was risen. So we kind of want to honor that because I got to tell you, as a pastor, sometimes it's weird to go right from crucifixion to resurrection and not spend any time in the lament. Right? So that's why we do it. I hope that's okay. Come. Check it out. We've got a bunch of baptisms that are going to happen on Sunday too, so it's going to be amazing. But what captures me about this part of the story is that we go from Sunday with people who are just believers, throwing their robes down, throwing, you know, everything they could get, tearing trees apart and throwing palm fronds on the ground so that his donkey wouldn't even touch the ground. We go from Sunday believers to Thursday night deceivers. They're shouting for the freedom of Barabbas, who is a criminal and a revolutionary, who is a false Messiah. They went from Sunday believing it was Jesus to Thursday because it was no longer popular, because they were no longer expecting, because Jesus did not do what they thought he was going to do for them. So they were willing to deceive themselves and let Jesus die on a cross. So maybe a takeaway or a question we have from this is how do we deal with expectation? The hope of the Passion Week was not realized in the way that they wanted it to be realized. They shouted so excited about the new establishment of the kingdom of David. Their political reality did not come to pass. It did not happen in the way it was, they expected it to, but it happened in the way that it needed to. I mean, we have expectations. And I wonder if you went back through your life and you asked yourself the question, what has worked out better than expected? Sometimes expectations far exceed, like, you know, the reality far exceeds your expectation. And it's great, right? Or maybe it's not great. And then sometimes our expectations are something and then it hasn't worked out at all. What has not worked out at all? But here's an interesting question. Whether it's worked out better than you thought or whether it's worked out worse than you thought, which one is better? Because sometimes we get everything we want and it destroys us. And sometimes we get nothing that we want, but it's everything that we need and it saves us. How do you deal with expectation? 
Are you a Sunday believer or a Thursday deceiver? When I think about expectations and how I want things to be, and I got to tell you, there's a lot of ways I want things to be. When I go through those highs of something working out better than I thought, and even when I go through those lows of being disappointed and wondering why it worked out the way that it did, this is what I remember. And this part of the story reminds me of this text found in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything, met expectations, unmet expectations. Everything working out, nothing working out. We know that God causes everything to work together. Disappointment, elation, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Let's pray today. Lord of grace, as we move into this holy week, as it's called, as we think about Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, and we get to your trial on Thursday and then the crucifixion we experience on Friday, as we come back together, Lord, may we think about our expectations and how you make those that are met and those that are not met still work together for good. Lord, may we think about whether or not we've become gatekeepers of someone's salvation and convict our hearts if we have and open our eyes so we don't. And lastly, Lord, I ask that you bring us through this week in the solemnity, thinking about the reality and how painful and how powerful this week is and how it led to this amazing weekend that we will lament and celebrate next week. Lord, we're grateful for you and how you work things out for us. In your name I pray. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.